ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagafin, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat ehilot osef who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natanlanu et derach ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together... Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, 
who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et hashabat. La'asot et hashabat ladoratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. K'shashet yamin asa aronai et hashamayim va'et haraletz uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam Va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. V'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. V'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. V'shinan tam levanecha v'debartabam. Beshiftacha, bebethcha, uflechtecha, bederech, ufshuchbecha, ufkumicha. Ukshartam, leot al yedecha, vahayula totafot, benanecha. Uktaftam, almezuzot, betecha, uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Yeah. 
Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at uh, B'nai Shalom. Uh, this Sabbath, uh, we are in the portion in Exodus called Tetzaveh. If you recall from last week, uh, we introduced the subject in Exodus of the tabernacle. And as I mentioned before, with the exception of two chapters that remain, uh, that talk about the sin of the golden calf. The rest of the book of Exodus is going to be dealing with the tabernacle construction, the priesthood, and having to do with all of the elements of how the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness came to be. The Haftor portions uh, tend to follow about the temple in Jerusalem, and our Haftor portion this week <clears throat> follows about the temple as spoken of by Ezekiel, which is a future temple we referred to commonly as the third temple <clears throat> in the study of the temples of Jerusalem. Uh, Tetzavah begins by talking about the olive oil that's going to be used as the fuel uh, for the menorah. And, and it's kind of interesting that it suddenly jumps to this one consumable um, that is to be used after laying out the furnishings and the construction of the tabernacle. And then it's going to, from that, shift all into the priestly garments, namely the breastplate and shoulder pieces that the high priest would wear, the garments for the priests. And it's going to conclude in our Torah portion with the construction and the setting up of the golden altar, which is the smaller altar that's actually in the sanctuary before the veil, essentially surrounded by the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, and the menorah itself. And our Haftor portion is going to key off of the last part of the Torah portion about the golden altar and immediately go into a description about the great hearth or the great fire altar that will be into um, the um, third temple in the Ezekiel temple. Now before I get there, I do want to touch on a part of the Torah portion which is very important for us to take note of because as you know in the Torah, teaching of the Torah we have the different levels of the plain sense of the text, the rumez, the hint, and so forth. And I want to point out that there's a natural question that comes as to, in the midst of all of this description about the tabernacle and the temples and so forth, why should there be this focus on the olive oil, which is the fuel of the menorah? And it has to do with this is the symbology that we have the Remez level of not only of the work of the Messiah, but also the work of the Holy Spirit. 
the Messiah is the anointed one, he, and you anoint with the olive oil. And, of course, the Spirit of the Lord is associated with the oil of the lamp. In fact, the menorah lamp, according to Isaiah, the seven spirits of God are illustrated in the menorah and the fuel of the lamps that goes with it. The, those remez efforts are really powerful in terms of helping us again to understand why do we have all this instruction about the tabernacle and the temple? Now, the priests work there, and only the high priest works in the Holy of Holies, but why do the rest of us need to know about this? Why do the rest of us have this instruction that's been given to us? Well, the short and quick answer has to do with that the work of the Messiah is to create the temple within us. That's God's ultimate goal, his presence within every person. But, uh, and, and I'm going to leave it kind of at that, but I want to incentivize you, I want to motivate you, if at all possible, that you need to take very seriously the instruction. You need to be able to, in your mind's eye, picture this tabernacle where God is at. You need to see and have a sense of it, the proportions and the placement and the form and the fashion of it, because that's what our Hoftor portion is going to emphasize. Now, with that said, let me take you to Ezekiel uh, 43. We're going to begin at verse 10. We're only going to go through the end of the chapter. It's just 17 verses. And so I'm going to read all 17 verses for you, and then we'll go back and examine how does this play into and why is this the Hoftor portion associated with Tetzavah. Uh, beginning at verse 10 of Ezekiel 43, as for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all its designs, all its statues, and all its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and do them. This is the law of the house. Its entire area on top of the mountain all around shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. I might add at this point the word law there is specifically Torah. In the Hebrew it says that this is the Torah of the house. Verse 13, and these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. The base shall be a cubit and, and the width of a, hand, uh, a cubit and its border on its edge round about one span and it shall be the height of the base of the altar. Before I go any further, I've got to explain this different unit of measure. Normally, in all previous descriptions, things are measured by cubits. This is the distance from the elbow to the tip of the fingers. This is a cubit. So a man could measure with his own arm the distance of a cubit. But he says, and a cubit is assumed to be six handbreadths, and a handbreadth is, is this distance. So there's six of those in a cubit. But what he says is he wants to use a different unit of measure. I want a cubit and a handbreadth. So it's seven handbreadths is the cubit of measure that he's going to give for the dimensions of this. This is very unique uh, and is not done elsewhere um, in Scripture. So let me continue. Verse 14, and from the base on the ground to the lower ledge shall be two cubits and the width of one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge shall be four cubits and the width of one cubit. 
and the altar, altar hearth shall be four cubits, and from the altar hearth shall extend upwards four horns. Now the altar hearth shall be twelve cubits long by twelve wide, square in its four sides. And the ledge shall be fourteen cubits long by fourteen wide. And the center and the border around it shall be half a cubit, and its base shall be a cubit round about, and its steps shall face to the east." And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord God, these are the statutes of the altar on the day that is built to offer burnt offerings on it and to sprinkle blood on it. And you shall give it to the Levitical priests who are from the offspring of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a young bull for a sin offering, and you shall take some of its blood and put it on the horns and on the four corners of the ledge and on the border around. Thus you shall cleanse it, make atonement for it. You shall also take the, the bull for the sin offering, and it shall be burned in the appointed place of the house outside the sanctuary. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the offering as they cleansed it with the bull. And when you finish cleansing it, you shall present a young bull without blemish and a ram without blemish for the flock, from the flock. And you shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall throw salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall prepare daily a goat for a sin offering and a young bull and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be prepared. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and purify it, so shall they consecrate it. And when they have completed the days, it shall be on the eighth day and onward, the priest shall offer your burnt offerings on the altar, your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord. Now, earlier in the book of Leviticus, we have some instruction about um, the building of the fire altar. And in fact, it was in the previous portions gave us the dimensions. This is a great earth altar as opposed to the mobile altar that was done uh, uh, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. In Jerusalem, they built an earth altar there also. And it was a large earth altar. It had a ramp, and it had a big platform for the hearth. And in fact, the temple in Jerusalem used to have three pyres on top of it, one for the pyre for the sacrifices, one that was a, a small fire that was used to light the pyre, and then there was coals on another uh, element, and those were the coals that were taken inside the sanctuary to burn the incense with on the golden altar, those coals that came from the fire altar. In this particular case, there's a repetition of what we call the ordination or the dedication of the altar. If you recall, at the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, while the legend speaks to um, the eight days that the, um, the menorah stayed lit, the real Feast of Dedication was they were rededicating, rebuilding and rededicating the altar that was outside of the sanctuary. And uh, so the Feast of Dedication was the dedication of the new altar. Well, Ezekiel says that in this third temple, there's going to be a major rededication uh, for that altar that will be done. So any altar that may get built, say, between now and the, and the Messianic kingdom is not the altar that's being spoken of here in Ezekiel. It, it's probably simply going to satisfy the prophecy of the one that's built and then shut down, which is the start of the Great Tribulation. And that altar will then go away. And <clears throat> essentially when God returns, when the Messiah returns, he will reestablish the temple service. And the first thing that's done when you're rebuilding the temple and you're reestablishing the temple is you got to get that altar up and operational. This is the pattern of building the temple uh, all times past is you got to have these, you got to have this altar operating. And to get that altar operating, you have to have priests and they have to do a dedication. Um, and it takes a, a bulls and goats to be able to do it. 
It's an eight-day procedure, and on the eighth day, you can then begin to do the daily sacrifice and all the other associated sacrifices of the worship of the Lord. And it, so it goes through in great detail to do this. Now, I, I spoke to you about the motivation of why should we learn this? Why do we need to know this? It's because God has emphatically said that we need to know these things. Let me take you back again to the first verses here. He says that, that we're supposed to describe the temple and to the house of Israel. It's supposed to be part of the process of bringing us back in repentance to the Lord correctly. We're supposed to be ashamed of our iniquities. We're supposed to understand the measure. And he says, um, specifically, he says, he wants us to understand all of its entrances, its exits, its statutes, its laws, and, and do this um, so that we understand the full design of God's house and how we come to worship before him. At the, the most immediate parallel uh, to this is that a lot of times, and, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, I'm guilty of this myself, the, um, we get kind of into a pattern, you know, before the Lord, where, yeah, we believe God. Yes, yes, we are trying to obey the Lord. Yes, yeah, we're walking along with the Lord. But we're not that terribly diligent about it, okay? We, some days I call them bread and butter days. Some days it's just bread and butter. There's nothing really spectacular or whatever. But the language that's here about understanding the temple is that for some reason God wants you in your mind's eye. He wants you to see this place where his presence is at, where you come to do business with him, when you come to his table, his altar to do business. And I think for me, I have, what I have discovered about this is that if I can get that picture when I come and approach the Lord, when I want to do business with the Lord, I picture myself entering in the outer courts. I, I, I see that I have to come with the aid of the Messiah, the priest, that I come before the altar. I need to, I need to get things straight between him and I. I need to be at his table. We need to sit down and we need to discuss things before we go any further. I need to be able to come to terms with the Lord and the Lord help me come to terms with him as well. And that's what this altar and this temple business is all about. This is where God does business with man and where we do business with the Almighty. And there's some house rules. There's a right and proper way to do this. We don't come in before the Lord in a cavalier manner. We don't come before him angry. We don't come before him accusing him. We come respectfully and appropriately before him, recognizing for who he is. And we attempt to obey and learn to walk before him. You know, I would remind everybody that that incredible commandment in the Ten Commandments about honor your father and your mother is that it's absolutely crucial for you to learn how to honor your own father and mother because if you don't learn how to do that, you're never going to be quite successful in how to honor your heavenly father and to understand who your creator is and how you came about and the life that we have here, the grace and mercy that God gives to us. According to this instruction and according to the great plan of what God did by building a tabernacle, by building a temple in Jerusalem, placing his name there, apparently he seems to understand that if we can come to terms with this place, that we will come to terms with how God's presence works in our life how we can properly approach, and how we can understand the things that God has done, how we as mortals can approach the eternal. And all the dynamics and the contrasts that are associated with that, this place, this temple, 
is the mechanism that God has created to enable us to do that. It's very important that we come to terms with this, that we follow this instruction that's been given to us. And I think, again, going back to why does the Torah spend so much time on explaining the tabernacle to us, is it goes back to the original intent of what God was trying to do with our ancestors. And it, but, and it still extends to us today, even though the tabernacle may not be operating, even though the temple is not in Jerusalem, we still know that there's a promise of a future temple the Ezekiel temple in the future, and we can still see the work of the Messiah and the Holy Spirit working with us for a temple that's inside of us. And we need to be able to see it, recognize it, and it have to be a centerpiece of our faith in God. So that is our Haftor portion for this week to go with Tetzavah. Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 11. Hold your finger there at verse 13, where our Brit Hadashah uh, portion and readings will begin for this week. And as you open the Scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for opening your Scripture and your Word to us. Make it come alive and powerful. Open our eyes and our ears, Lord, to hear your words that you would have us to hear, to share. May we, our faith in you become stronger every time that we dig into your word and your instruction. Father, not just the times here on the weekends when people uh, hear the teachings and the studies and go to their congregations and fellowships, but Father, may the word of God be like bread that nourishes us each and every day. May we always be, remember to open your scripture and to let it come alive to us each and every day. We thank you now for this time and this opportunity uh, to dig into your word. We love you, bless you, and thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is Tetzaveh, which uh, comes from uh, right at the very end of Exodus chapter 27 and extends through a couple of chapters all the way to, um, to the middle of chapter 30. As I said before in last week's portion where Moses is receiving all of this word and this instruction from the mountain uh, on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai and is um, seeing the pattern of the tabernacle, the establishment of the house of God. Last week we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, table of showbread, uh, the menorah. And this week we are talking about, it starts initially talking about the olive oil that is to be brought to be used as fuel for the menorah, for the lampstand. That's a couple of verses at the beginning of our portion here. And then the rest of our portion goes into the consecration of the high priests, Aaron as the high priest and his sons, the consecration of the Levitical priesthood, and the construction and creation of the articles that the priests would wear, namely the high priest that had great beautiful garments that were uh, that had very specific meanings and purpose to each in the, of the elements of the creation of that garment. So we're talking a lot about the high priest, and we're talking about initially this olive oil that's going to be crushed and beaten. To bring out some of this, uh, the teaching and the, the, um, the symbolism of what the Torah portion is about, well, I want to dig into the New Testament and hopefully bring out some of these teachings and some of these things, how they might relate to our Torah portion for this week. So taking us here to Romans chapter 11, this is the great teaching about the olive tree that Paul is giving and sharing, talking about how Gentiles are going to come in and be fed and to be nourished by the foundation and the root that has been established with the Scripture, with Torah, and with the testimony of the Messiah. So reading right here from Romans uh, 11, starting at verse 13, let's dig in. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am a, an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, for if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? He's talking about how, if, as he shares and speaks to the Gentiles, let all of the natural born, those that are of his kin, as he was a Jew, 
that they might be saved by all the words and all the things that are being encouraged as well. And he continues on in verse 16. For if the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say, then, branches were broken off that I may be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Here we have the story of that, that I believe is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture that speak to the idea of it doesn't matter what your natural descendancy is, you are a part of the family of Israel, the people of God. Israel is likened unto an olive tree, not just here, but in other parts of Scripture as well, in the sense that the, this olive tree is grown and, and is nourishing and it bears good fruit. But like he said, we are the branches of the olive tree, and if we fall into unbelief, those branches get broken off. They were broken off for unbelief. Now, the whole idea is we want to be grafted into that olive tree. We want to be grafted back in into the, the holy root. As it said, the root was holy. We need to be fed and nourished. A branch broken off will die and will perish on its own. So the idea is this. We need to get back to our source of life that, so that we might be grafted into what God is wanting to share with us and to teach us. And that is the, the nature of this entire passage of Scripture. Now, it talks about how it doesn't matter whether you're natural branches, wild branches, or whether this tree that is wild by nature. And then it says, a, then how much greater is a branch grafted back into its own tree? This is talking about those that might hear the testimony of Gentiles coming into faith, but then those who are actually of Israel by nature, how much more powerful is it when somebody who is actually literally the heritage of Israel comes back into the faith that is appropriate for Israel, comes back into the belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For many who have bloodlines that, that can be traced back to Israel, how many of them walk secular lifestyles? in any thing that they want to say or do, in any way that they want to act. And then when that person comes to their senses, comes to life, and then realizes the, the, the heritage and the faith that they should have in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and comes back into the fold, grafted back into the original tree, how much greater is that? What kind of how, how, the, the, the rejoicing of the family reunion-like aspect is, is wonderful in that case. That's not to say that, once again, there are all have to be grafted back in. That doesn't make the one that was natural greater than the one who was wild, or we all are become co-heirs to the kingdom when we come into faith and testimony in Yeshua the Messiah. We all want to become back a part of this olive tree. Now, here's the connection back to our Torah portion. Why an olive tree? What's so special about olives? What, what, that, that they are... That, that, that it's In fact, olives are this kind of thing where it's like some people you might run into, they, they don't like olives. And olives are, uh, they have to be, you know, brined before they really are edible. What, what, what is the whole nature of the olive tree and why is it likened unto this way? Well, one, it is a very fruitful tree as far as the yield of olives that come off of a tree and off of a single tree. There's, and there's, the leaves are so small and it's like the, there's a lot packed into a small space 
when it comes to an olive tree. The wood of an olive tree is, is fascinating in its winding, wavy wave, waves that, that it's, it's not uniform. It's very organic, if I could say, say so. That it's like, it looks like this living organism that, that truly is, um, it, it's a spectacle to behold if you ever get to go to Israel or go somewhere where you can see what a wild olive tree really looks like. One that's been growing for a very long time, such as the ones that are still in the Garden of Gethsemane even to this day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And again, going back to our Torah portion, these olives were meant to be pressed and to be used as fuel into oil, to be used as fuel for the menorah so that light might shine forth. Now, that's, now the, the, the commandment specifically, we, we, we can start drawing some parallels immediately to the pressing and the crushing of the olives produces the fuel that brings light into the world. Okay, well, we can start t- teaching about the Messiah in a few short steps, easily talking about how he was pierced and crushed for our iniquity so that then the light of the world could shine forth. That's the testimony of Yeshua. Same thing with the olive. You can't use the fuel of the, and the oil of an olive without it being beaten, crushed, crushed pressed, and, and pulverized. Otherwise, you don't get the goodness out of the fruit and out of the olive. Such is the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. By his stripes we are healed, and without the pressing and the crushing and the the crucifixion of the Messiah, we do not receive the life-giving benefits of that fruit, of the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. So likening the olive to the Messiah, we can do this very easily. In Judaism, they liken the olive tree unto Israel, that Israel has been persecuted for, for many years, and that it is the testimony of Israel that they still thrive, even though they've been pressed, crushed, uh, oppressed in, in the course of all of history and time, that then it's, that Israel still is fruitful in that the yield that comes out of Israel, the spiritual heritage that comes from Israel, is still alive, strong, powerful, and, and can, can nourish many others uh, after it, in the same way that olives are crushed and pressed, and then you get the goodness out of the fruit. Obviously, the rabbis don't believe in Yeshua. For those of us that do have a testimony of the Messiah, we see this parallel. We we liken it unto the same. I don't got any issue with the idea of relating Israel to the olive tree, but then the old idea is that the Messiah himself came from that same tree, that same branch, that same uh, same root, that it's the Messiah, that his heritage is also in Israel as well. Again, also with the olive is this. Other things and, and that can come from the pressing and crushing of olives to create oil. It can be used for cooking. Like I said, I've already been talking about nourishing. It can be used to make soap, which is a common uh, use of olives, especially in the Middle East. And when you think about the Messiah who washes us clean in, and he makes us clean from our sin, the parallel and the symbolism of soap coming from the same material, that also makes perfect sense as well. So there's all these fascinating parallels to the idea and the concept of an olive tree. Now, the one part that I want to emphasize, though, however, is this, is the oil that comes from, uh, the olive oil that comes from the pressing of olives as well, the purest oil, what it also can be used for and what it definitely relates to our Torah portion is, is the use of anointing. That is where you take oil that you anoint over and you, you elevate the status of somebody by anointing them to a certain job, a certain task, a certain role. And this is absolutely prevalent in our Torah portion. It be, it's, it's no coincidence that our, our portion here begins talking about olive oil and then continues on about the consecration of the high priests and Aaron in particular as the high priest, that he was anointed to do that job. Now, why is this, why is this important? Well, the Messiah himself, too, was also anointed to be the Messiah, elevating his status to a certain level. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We have this curious passage here, which, truth be told, it's, not, it's a quote actually from the book of Isaiah, but we find it here in our New Testament, where we have a story about Yeshua going to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, as it was his custom, and that he was handed a book from the prophet Isaiah, and he opened and he read a certain passage of Scripture. Now, 
us, you know, looking at this saying, it's all like, hey, well, what scriptures did, did Yeshua read? Well, here we have one from Isaiah chapter 61. And you, you can sit there and you can turn to Isaiah 61 and you can, the next time you open it, actually put the note in your Bible and say, Yeshua read this. When he went to a synagogue, he was handed a book and these words were spoken. And you too can read those same words. That's kind of a cool thought if you think about it. But here he gave, he, he said these words, and there's a very uh, specific phrase about what he said in this quote from Isaiah, where it says this, he found this passage where it was written, this comes from Isaiah 61, verse 18 of Luke 4, it um, gives the quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This is when they start talking about like, you know, that they start rejecting him and it's all like, this is that guy from Nazareth. It's like, who is this? Who is this guy? And that's where the, the, the story turns. But what I want to point out is the Messiah fulfilling a prophecy where that he was going to be one that the spirit of Lord was put upon him. He has been anointed, preaching the gospel, proclaiming liberty, giving sight to the blind. When has there ever been another instance in which somebody has healed those that are blind and given them sight? Don't have records in history, especially not ones that were born blind. They were born without the ability to see. There's, there's obviously people you might say your regular ophthalmologist would, uh, optometrist would, you know, give you, put a contact in your eye and suddenly you can see again. It's not blurry anymore. It's like you could say that that's a, that's a miracle. Well, but we know with modern medicine, that's something that you, you wouldn't attribute what a doctor can do. With, with technology and glasses and, and give, recover somebody's sight. What's being talked about here is obviously miraculous in nature. And the Messiah said, he said to the people there, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Once again, there's that biblical word fulfilled. Does that mean that the scripture doesn't matter anymore? Of course not. This scripture now becomes full of meaning to now understand what the prophet Isaiah was talking about. He was talking about the Messiah who would come and who would be the one who would preach the gospel, proclaim liberty, give liberty to those who are oppressed. This is the work of the Messiah, and He has been anointed to do that task. Now, this is the time in which the Messiah spoke and talked about um, how He was anointed to be, do this role, to be this, to be the Messiah. But then He was literally anointed with oil, Back in, it's recorded in several of the Gospels, but I'm going to go ahead and take you to Matthew chapter 26. And this is the anointing of the Messiah at Bethany, which this story is, is well known and understood. And, and there's actually some question about this. This is where he's living in the house of a leper, which some people still hold that against the Messiah to this day, that he, uh, that he interacted with those that were leprous, sinners, all of these things but then where oil was literally put upon him. And it's done in this curious way. It's done by, it's done by a, a woman that was, was there while they were there, and it's like it seems like the, the oil was, was, was put on him in maybe an inappropriate way in some way, form, or fashion. But what the Messiah said afterwards is what takes special note, especially for us in the, our modern times. Let me read the story here. Matthew 26 and verse 6, it says this, and when Yeshua was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it out on his head, and he sat at the table. And when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why the waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor when it had this, this great value to it. But Yeshua was aware of it, and he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done 
will also be told as a memorial to her. This is actually a compliment going to this woman, that's not identified specifically, that when she came and she did this and she poured out this oil, that she was doing something great in the annals of history, that it should be recorded as a memorial to her that she did this. Well, what did she do? She anointed the Messiah. She put the oil, the fragrant oil, upon his head so that he might be declared the right, holy, acceptable sacrifice, that he might be anointed to be king over all the earth, to be the Messiah, that this is something he is the anointed one. In fact, this is the other thing that, too, you, you can't help but not bring this out. The fact that he is called the Christ, which is the Greek word, of course, that is, is translated from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. The very thing that we call him, whether you call him Jesus Christ or you call him the Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah, he is the anointed one. That is the title by which we give, give God. It's almost like his last name that we even con consider it to be. As he is the anointed one. This is the work of the woman that brought this costly fragrant oil and made and assured that he literally fulfilled the role and the title of being the anointed one. Now, why is that, what, 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 is that, what does that mean for us necessarily? Well, that means that he is anointed just as the high priest was anointed. I brought out last week talking about in the book of Hebrews. In fact, we'll go, we'll go again to the book of Hebrews talking about how, <clears throat> excuse me, about He is our high priest, that He is the one who is the intercessor between the common man and between God and, that between, and Israel, and He did and performed and worked at the service of the Master, the King of the universe. And here in um, Hebrews chapter 4, at verse 14, it says this, seeing that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the role of the high priest. When somebody came to give an offering to the Lord. Obviously, people often gave, you know, out of the, the abundance and, and out of their, the love that they had, peace offerings and thanksgiving offerings and all of these different things. But ultimately, what our brain always go, tends to, to think about is the time in which somebody needed to come to the altar to, the, to make a sacrifice was because they were in their time of need. They had sinned. They had made a mistake. They are in need of, of, of prayer and supplication and wanting to know what the Lord wants to do or lead them from one step to the next. Or, or, and they need forgiveness for the sin they committed against their brother and they need to come back into right standing with the Lord. So they're going to bring a sacrifice. And that's actually where our brain tends to go with the idea and the concept of why would we need to come to the presence of God? Because we're in our time of need. Because we need, we need God in our life. That is why we would enter into His presence. That's why we worship Him. That's where we enter, when we praise Him, when we study His Word, we're desiring to enter into His presence because we need Him, His salvation. We need His life. We need, we, we need all of those things so that we can sustain ourselves. We need God. And it was the high priest that fulfilled the role, the intercessor between us and God. And that's who Yeshua is to us, is the high priest. Aaron the high priest was called Mashiach. If you go into the original Hebrew, back into, into our Torah portion, talking about when that he was anointed, that every time that they would anoint him with oil, the, the verb to anoint is the Hebrew word Mashiach. And then when somebody is called the anointed one, he is called Mashiach, the anointed one. And Aaron, the high priest, was specifically and literally called in the book of Leviticus and other parts of Scripture, he was called in the Hebrew, Hakohen HaMashiach, the anointed priest. At one point, yeah, he's called the, the high priest, the great priest, Kohen HaGadol, but Kohen HaMashiach, that Aaron, the high priest, literally carried with him the same name, same title that we give to the Son of God, the Savior, our Savior. 
And this is the role of the high priest. He was anointed with oil when he was consecrated. And it says specifically, the oil dripped from his beard when it came to Aaron. So that he was consecrated to do the job and the role of high priest, to be that intercessor. Yeshua followed the same pattern. Anointed with oil upon his head with a fragrant oil so that he might be elevated to the status and the level to be our intercessor between us and God. This is, the role, this is the fulfillment of Yeshua becoming our high priest. And this is the role that he, this is one of the roles that he plays for us in our relationship to God. He is Mashiach. He is the anointed one. One of the other fascinating things about that passage I was reading from Hebrews, we're talking about how he was a high priest without sin. This is actually a teaching that is done from Judaism about the high priest. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the high priest had to hold himself to a very high standard uh, level and standard as far as how he carried himself, presented himself. Now, every man still is not, uh, there's no man that's without sin, but he still had to, when it came to the garments, they all had to be right and righteous and, app and appropriate in every role and task that he did in performing the services of the tabernacle. On his garments, he had the stones of the breastplate that had all the tribes of Israel, and he bore the weight of the tribes of Israel. In fact, there were two stones, onyx stones, that are on the shoulder pieces of the high priest, and each of the names of all the tribes of Israel are written there as well. One of the fascinating things, and this is sort of this deeper study that uh, some people have, have brought out, is this, is that in all the listing of the names of the sons of Israel that were written on the shoulders of these, on these stones, on the shoulders of the high priest's garment, there are two Hebrew letters that did not appear anywhere on those stones. Now, you'd have to sit there and you'd have to check, you know, every single letter to figure this out, but somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody did figure this out. And the two Hebrew letters that don't appear anywhere on those stones is a het and a tet, which those two letters put together form the root of the word hata, which is sin. The understanding is, is that you, you can take this two different ways. One, the high priest bears the sins of all Israel, which also is a parallel to what the Messiah did when he took his sins and all of our shame and all of the punishment that we were due for our sin upon himself in the course of the crucifixion. That relates. And also in the idea that those two Hebrew letters weren't found on those shoulders, so nowhere could be found on those, in those letters the word sin. Sin could not be found. He was, he was to operate as the high priest and this understanding that he is without sin. The Messiah himself too, as it said in Hebrews, was without sin. This again, another parallel to the, to the Messiah, the anointed one, being our high priest, the Kohen HaMashiach. Also in Revelation chapter 19, uh, talking about the garments that was created as well. These garments, as it's described in our Torah portion, were made for beauty and for majesty. These garments were holy, were, were ornate, and they were more, um, they, they had more beauty to them than any normal bit of garments that had ever been created. And in fact, it's, 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 when it says that it was created for majesty, what actually it is, is that, <coughs> excuse me, is that these were garments fit for a king. So not only is the Messiah the priest, and does the high priest do the role of priest, but the garments that he wears is actually an elevated status, is a status symbol based on the garments that he is, he is almost like treated, should be treated like royalty. That the garments are, are majestic in nature and that he is, they, that he's like a king. Well, the Messiah himself carried this same title as well. Where in Revelation chapter 19, it says that the, the Messiah, when he comes back on earth, written on his thigh, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it was originally proclaimed by the angel to Mary that what he was going to do is he was going to, that he was going to sit on the throne of Jacob, that he was going to become king over all of Israel. This is the conversation he had with Pilate where he says, hey, I understand that you're a king. And this is the, 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 the Messiah fulfilled this role of not only being our high priest and being the anointed one and the anointed priest, but he also fulfills the role of being the king. 
There is no role or, or job described in Scripture or really anywhere else that you could ever come up with in this world that better relates the idea that one person occupies a certain office and he is adorned with majesty and is equivalent to royalty, yet he also does this work and this job as a servant in the priesthood that serves in the tabernacle of God. The priest, the high priest embodies that exact role. This is why we're taught these things in Torah. We might sit here and say, look, we don't have a priesthood. Why are we talking about the garments of the priest? And why are we talking about the tabernacle? The tabernacle doesn't exist anymore. Ark of the Covenant, we don't know exactly where it is. There's no temple. Why do we emphasize all these things in the Torah portion? Because they all point to the Messiah. When the Messiah said that you, if you had believed Moses' words, he wrote of me, then you sit there and you're like, well, where exactly did he write of him? Well, he described the entire idea of an anointed priest that is clothed in majesty, which is what one of the things we say all the time and when we're singing uh, uh, songs of praise to the Lord, and that he is clothed in majesty, yet also serves like a servant. This is once again the roles that Messiah played, that he was the role of a servant. He got down in the dirt on the ground and he washed the feet of his disciples. The divine Son of God got down on his feet and washed the dirt and grime and mud off of his, the feet of his disciples. Why? So that we could understand that the Messiah is a servant who serves the brethren and serves God, like a priest. That's what a priest does. Serves God, serve, how God has prescribed for him to be worshipped for incense to be on this altar here, for light to be in this menorah here, for bread to be on this table here, for sacrifices to be on that altar there. And this is how we're supposed to worship. And God has commanded the priests to work and to serve in this way. It's a job that where we serve God. At the same time, you have people coming in through the door and they want to give a gift to God. They want to worship the Lord and they also serve them as well. They make the way and, the, and they, they, they follow all of the appropriate boundaries and procedures to bring that sacrifice in so that the man of Israel can worship the Lord and enter into the presence of God as an intercessor between Israel and God. There is, uh, I don't know if there is a more profound parallel teaching to the role of Yeshua in our lives, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, that better describes what his role is. He is our high priest. The book of Hebrews, I like the fact that the book of Hebrews makes it a point to point that out. The truly understanding that it points back to the relating the Levitical priesthood to the Messiah, that the work and the services and the sacrifices and the role of the high priest fits and parallels the Messiah without sin, which is what was said even above the high priest as well. So, all of these things all come together to be one of the most profound connections to the Messiah that many people, it's sad that many people fail to realize this. If whether we just have not spent enough time in our Christian faith in the Old Testament, if we look at the, the long, detailed, repetitive words of in, here in Exodus of what they were to do to consecrate the priesthood, in the giving of the offerings, in what the garments looked like, we just, I don't know if we have, some people have written this text off as not being important or thinking that it's some archaic thing that's done away with, when it cannot be further from the truth that this text is alive and powerful and is essential for us to understand who Yeshua is to us. That is how we should approach anytime we're talking about the tabernacle, the altar service, and the priesthood, and particularly the high priest, all of it points to the Messiah. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't draw a better parallel for you other than the fact that this is the role that Yeshua plays for us as our intercessor between us and God. When He said, no one goes to the Father except through Him, that's just like the priesthood where nobody came into the presence of God to see and to, to be in the presence of the power and the glory of God unless there was a priest there to do the work and the service. And that is the, Yeshua's role to us. So with that said, let us uh, pray before the Lord.
thanking him for his sacrifice, for playing that role, for being our intercessor, and for being the Mashiach, the anointed one in accordance with Scripture and the law of Moses. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time, this opportunity. Father, may we always look to you, your power and your glory, Lord, and and the majesty, Father. You are King of kings and you are Lord of lords. And Father, we humbly submit to you, your power, your work, Father, we thank you for the service that you provide to us, for sending your son Yeshua to die for our sins, to be the propitiation for the mistakes that we have made for for being our Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have elevated him and anointed him to be the intercessor, that you, you desire to dwell with us, Father, and you make a way for even us who are unclean, unworthy, you still make a way for us to come into your presence and to worship you. Father, what an honor and a blessing that it is that we can come into your presence and that we can worship you, and that you have made a way for us to receive salvation, to receive life from your life giving from, from the root, Lord, of the family of Israel, Lord, and that you can sustain us and nourish us and strengthen us. Father, we bless you, and we, Father, may we, be, may we find the honor some, in the kingdom, Lord, to be the one that brings the oil, Lord, brings the oil that, is, is, that lights the menorah, and be, it brings the oil, Lord, that would be the anointing upon the high priest. And Father, may, may we all worship at your feet, Lord, in everything that you do for us. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for this time and this teaching. In Yeshua's name, Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.